Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where S is for Sherwood, Kim Sherwood. My name is Tom Butler. Joining me as we have a chat with the author of a new James Bond book. He's the nothing to my double. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. <laughs> oh boy. I wondered which way around I was going to do it, and that's the way it fell. Yeah, so um, earlier on we spoke to Kim Sherwood about her, her latest novel, Double or Nothing, which is a brand new series of um, of Ian Fleming publication books. It was great to chat to her. The book is out now at all good book stores and bad ones as well, that classic joke. There you go. With, from HarperCollins, it's worth to say that they were the publishers. They uh, helped sort out this interview. So we're very, very grateful to them for uh, connecting us with Kim. And uh, I think we had a, a lovely chat with her and uh, learned a lot about the new book and about her connection to the James Bond films. So, uh, yeah, so I hope hopefully you enjoy this. Just a little bonus episode for you. Um, so, yeah, without further ado. Let's roll the tape. Can you tell us about your um your personal connection to to Bond and how you were first introduced to the character? Sure thing. So my love of Bond, I guess like a lot of people my age, began with Pierce Brosnan's films arriving on the TV. I was too young to see them in the cinema. My first cinematic Bond experience was Die Another Day. Uh, but the ones I first saw on the TV, uh, Golden Eye and, and The World Is Not Enough, and I just completely fell in love with the character. I was obsessed. I used to play Bond in imaginary games. And I had my little spy kit with invisible ink that was probably just water and magnifying glass. And I used to spy on all the neighbors and write stories about them, which luckily they were very tolerant of. Um, and then I started to read Fleming when I was about 12 or 13. I'd always loved spy stories, probably starting with Famous Five, which isn't really a spy story, but sort of a, you know, investigating crime. And then Anthony Horowitz's Alex Ryder series. And then I suppose you you sort of graduate to reading Ian Fleming. So that was when I was about 12 or 13. And I wanted to try writing my own spy novel, but I didn't really know how you go about that. I was talking to my mum about it one day in Camden, and she said, well, try reading one. 
and we went into there's a great secondhand bookshop in Camden Town, Black Girls Books. Went in there and they had the you know the Flemings and the pan paperbacks, which I love. They're some of my favourite editions. And I bought from Russia with Love, and I was completely hooked by Fleming's style, by the characterization, and by really kind of the invitation into another world. There's that great sort of um, author's note in front of from Russia with Love where he says, you know, not that it really matters, but Smirsh really is a real organization and they're headquartered at and he gives you an address. And that felt so exciting to me, age 12, you know, <laughs> but it felt so real. And I was completely hooked. I read all of the books and then of course went on to watch all of the films. And so so really it's a it's a lifelong dream for me now. It's, it still feels like a dream, even though the book's out today, that uh, this is happening. <laughs> And um, we, we were at your book launch last night. It's a fantastic event. Um, and it's something that was sort of flagged quite early on when you were announced is that you have a personal connection to the Bond world as well. Yeah. Yeah. So my granddad, so this wasn't something I knew when I was very little and I was first getting into Bond. But when I was about 14, I was given that big golden um, book that came out like a guide to Bond. It came out around I another day. And... I was flicking through, I was given it as a Christmas present at my granddad's house and I was looking through it and there was a picture of him standing next to Roger Moore and the, you know, a picture of him next to George Lazenby and I was so excited and I ran down to him in the kitchen and said, you didn't tell me you were in James Bond. Uh, and he said, oh, you know, darling, that was a million years ago because for him that was quite early on, you know, the beginning of his career. But he'd actually been sort of tapped to play Bond. He was Fleming's choice for Bond. Um, when Fleming met him, he said to Cover Broccoli, that's my Bond. And actually, if you look at photos of him from that time, he does look a lot like Fleming's descriptions of Bond. But he was in a six-picture deal, so he couldn't um, take up the role. But he was always delighted to have appeared, you know, to have that connection. And it was so exciting for me. You know, I pestered him with a thousand questions about it. <laughs> and... Um... Uh, George Baker is is your grandfather, right? I don't know if you mentioned the name, but um, he um, he's actually someone we talked mm -hmm. about on the podcast because he has holds a rare place, you know, having appeared in a number of different films as different people. Um, after you knew that, then did you go back and revisit to sort of spot him? And how was that experience? Yeah, so then I would go through and watch. And it's interesting, the different phases, because when I was a teenager, it was just exciting, you know, that there he was. And, and also I would always... I was always really intrigued as a child and a teenager watching him in films and TV because, of course, he was always using different accents. And I was used to his real voice. And then I'd see him and think, oh, that's not that's not him. And I, I'd always like try and listen. How's he doing that? Um, and so that was sort of a joy. And then it became something else, something sort of bittersweet, but really special after he died because it's, it's a really lucky position to be. And we, we, we were really close and really lucky I can watch his moving image and I can listen to his voice still but I remember watching the spy who loved me sort of very quickly after he died and then finding that too much and it actually being too upsetting although I thought it would be comforting so then I, I didn't for a while and it, it took me a while to come back to them but I'm glad I took that space because then when I came back to them it was just such a joy again to see him and to see him uh, well, and to hear him, of course, because he voices a lot of Lazenby, you know, dubs a lot of Lazenby in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So I also enjoy watching that film and listening out and kind of going, well, that's George and that's George, you know, when Lazenby's talking. <laughs> I mean, there is almost almost more of him in it than Lazenby mm. at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is quite a high percentage. And there's bits in it um, that I think, you know, maybe... The, I, I guess the story came afterwards, didn't it? That Lazenby was a little bit surprised how much had been dubbed. 
because um, there, there are bits in it where you might not think it's his voice, but to my ear anyway, it's it's his voice. Let's move on to the book then. That's what we're here to talk about. Well, how did you uh, how did you land the job of writing Double or Nothing? So really, it's a story of how very good my agent is. First time I had lunch with my agent after I signed with her, she asked me what my career dreams and ambitions were. And I said half jokingly, oh, I'd really like to write James Bond, which I, which I meant, but I was like sort of laughing about it, which I've been saying half jokingly to people all of my life. It's sort of a lesson in saying completely insane things out loud. And then one day somebody might be the right person to eat. So she, she's kind of felt that way and remembered that I had said that when she heard that the estate were looking for a new writer because Anthony Horowitz's tenure was coming to an end. And they were looking for a young writer and looking for someone who's a real diehard fan because this is their family legacy. So it's essential to them that anybody who who sort of comes into their stable um, loves it as, as much as they do. And they hadn't been able to find the right person for a while. And Sue heard this and then remembered that when my first novel, Testament, had come out, I had tweeted a picture of it in a bookshop on publication day, um, next to Anthony Horowitz's Bond book. And I tweeted something like, oh, one step closer to my dream of writing Bond. So she remembered that, scrolled back through my Twitter, <laughs> found it, screenshot it, sent it to the Flemings and said, maybe this is the writer for you. So they then asked me to send them some ideas. And they asked me, is there anything that you have that sort of shows you're a fan? You know, not like a test or anything, but just, Anybody can say I love Bond, but is there is there a way to sort of evidence it? And luckily I had a school report I'd written when I was 13, like a bit of homework, and the task was to write about an author you admire. And I'd written this whole booklet with like pull-up flaps and illustrations and all of these things <laughs> about Ian Fleming. And so my mum still had that, she hadn't thrown it away, luckily. And I scanned that and I sent it to the Flemings along with a letter with some ideas. And I, and I just said, you know, this would honestly be the dream of a lifetime. They liked the ideas, invited me to lunch, and it all it all took off from there. And then I had to keep it secret for a year, which was the hardest thing not to tell people. I mean, um, can you tell us what that initial pitch was that, that you, you know, really sort of got you through the door? Because obviously a lot of people listen to this will not know, have not read Double or Nothing. Yeah. And I think it's really important that... Um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear what that pitch was and how, it, why it got them excited. So what they were interested in, their two criteria, were to widen out the cast so you have more than one hero. You have some other double O's alongside Bond and they wanted to bring it into the 21st century because most of the continuation novels had been period novels. And of course, with Anthony Horowitz's trilogy, they were set in the 50s and 60s. So that was sort of the two criteria, widen the cast and bring it up to the present. So my idea was to have Bond be missing. I felt like that's the challenge of the book, to write a James Bond book in which there are new characters. You know, readers are immediately going to be thinking, well, who are these people and why, you know, why should I care about them? Where's Bond? So I felt like I've got to find a way to get him off the page to leave space for these new characters but I also want him in the universe because I, you know, I love Bond. I want to be writing him as well. So I thought if he's missing from the beginning and then part of the plot is for these new characters to be trying to find him. So he's not there in the fictive now, but he's there in people's memories and he's there in flashback. That gave more space to the new characters. So there are three 
new double O's uh, who kind of lead this book and they're in different kind of strands of the story. So there's 003, Johanna Harwood, who started life out training as a trauma surgeon, but something happens in her life that means she's recruited into the 00 section by Moneypenny, who's now um, had a promotion and is heading up the 00 section. 003, Johanna Harwood has had a romantic relationship with Bond, which uh, didn't end well. It's not really a spoiler. Um, and she then got together with 009, Sid Bashir, who has a very strategic philosophical mind and in some ways quite different from Bond but Bond was his mentor so the three of them have a slightly uncomfortable love triangle uh, between them and uh, Bashir and Harwood in Double or Nothing are trying to work out what's happened to Bond where he is and then in another strand of the novel is 004 Joseph Dryden who was a special forces soldier before sustaining an injury in Afghanistan, which meant he was medically downgraded, had to leave the army, and then was recruited into the double section. And he's sort of on a separate adventure, kind of separate mission, but the two strands weave together through the novel. And it's really interesting. I mean, sometimes I know that um, when we're talking about the Bond novels, they've all, they're always so focused on Bond. Mm. Um, and I know there's been, I think maybe in the comics, you sometimes get spin-offs of characters. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really exciting to sort of explore this world from other angles. Um, so I'm really, really excited to, to read that. Um, but you mentioned Money Penny there. Are there other parts of the James Bond world that will be familiar to readers that they can sort of look out for? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got Money Penny uh, just in a new position. My my kind of background for Money Penny in my mind is that she uh, was a sort of running agents in the field and that Bond was the agent she was running. And the two of them have risen as sort of stars of the double A section, Moneypenny to become head of the double A section and Bond to become uh, the sort of most trusted agent in the double A section. So they have a very close relationship. And then there's M who's still head of MI6, but it's a different M because I felt like, you know, the screen M's are so iconic and you don't want to tread on that ground really and, and also i'm kind of dealing with a separate universe i'm looking to, to fleming's books but fleming's m is also so iconic and i don't want to kind of tread on that character so i thought i'll i'll, I'll bring in a new m and I actually for, for his character casting in my mind he, you know he, he was inspired by patrick stewart i don't know if you remember in, in lockdown one patrick stewart started to do those sonnet readings those shakespeare yeah. and they, they were just so comforting <laughs> something about his lovely voice and also his dress sense he's so cool yeah and i watched those every day in lockdown one and he kind of got in my mind and i thought he'd be a really good m so i've sort of got in my head that's my casting for him and then there's a few other um fan favorite characters that i maybe shouldn't mention because it might be spoilers but um people will will recognize some of their favorites and then there's a little bit of a twist on hugh again i felt like Q, Q branch in the novels is a little bit of a, of a lesser role than it has in the films. And of course, um, Q in the films is also so iconic and I don't want to tread on that ground. But I was looking into, I did a lot of research into technology used by spy organizations today. And I was really intrigued by the use of quantum computing and artificial intelligence to fight terror. So they use these quantum computers to crunch massive data sets to look through the financial transactions of terrorists. 
and you know Ian Fleming loved a pun and quantum of solace I felt like oh I can't resist that so <laughs> Q is a quantum computer and then there are other characters kind of around the computer uh, that you get to know and there are gadgets as well I understand yes I had so much fun designing the gadgets <laughs> it's hard though because you you know you don't want to repeat and think about how many gadgets there are in the films uh, so I had to kind of think about what hasn't been done and also what's useful for the story. I didn't want it to be, now let's pause the narrative while I have fun with some gadgets. It had to be things that drive drive the story forward. So we have a new car in the book, the Bond and Alpine, and I had a, a lot of fun kitting that out with imaginary gadgets. I spoke to uh, the managing director of Alpine and, and just said to him, you know, talk, talk me through the design of the car. And he told me that there were these five buttons that they'd put in and you know they had purposes but then they realized that the purpose for the fifth button was actually obsolete and it was causing some issues so they thought well we won't take the button out because aesthetically five is better but we, we just will have it not do anything so that to me i felt like god if, if q branch were presented with a car where there was a button that didn't do anything they would have a field day with that <laughs> so I, yeah i had a lot of fun uh, you know coming up with all those things when it comes to the gadgets, um, do you visualize them and then put them on paper as well? Like, would you like sketch a gadget? Oh, did I do any sketching for this? I don't think I did. I, it's a good question. Usually I do. So for my next uh, novel, it's not James Bond, um, which is coming out in February, A Wild and True Relation, which is about smugglers in the 18th century. For that one, I did a lot of painting, paintings of the mm. ships, paintings of the rooms as, as a way to visualize. For designing the gadgets in this one, it was more about finding images online. I was reading these really lengthy scientific reports on, you know, sort of cutting edge technology where I understand every tenth word, but but trying to sort of piece together. And then I was really lucky to talk to two army doctors about um, advancements in the field of head injuries, which is the injury that uh, Dryden sustains in Afghanistan. And, and talking to them about, you know, what technology are you already using? What is about to come online? That was really fascinating. And then, and then the, the task is you look at this technology and you think, how can I describe something on the page so that it doesn't just sound like science fiction? You see that you don't just think, okay, a sort of bunch of technical words, I'll skip over that to the next paragraph. You have to find a way to make it come alive. And quantum computers are actually really beautiful. They sort of look like these golden chandeliers with nerve endings look they look peculiar sort of alien life forms so i had a lot of fun trying to think about how to evoke that on the page with the books with the with fleming continuation books um the you know the tv and the uh, and the film division sort of st st seem to steer away from that world mm -hmm. do you feel like double or nothing is is more suited for a tv adaptation than perhaps a, a or, or a film adaptation than perhaps a, a, a continuation novel Have you, is that something that's crossed your mind well obviously the the film side is is the broccoli family and the books of the fleming family and it's really amazing when you think about it that these two families have held on to these franchises for so many decades and they they do work collaboratively together they know what the other one is doing but they also they also give each other space so you know i can comment on on their intentions at all but i think when you're when I was writing it, it's hard not to think about it visually. You know, how, how would it look on a screen? Because we're so used to seeing Bond on the screen and, we, you know, things like lighting and angles and even music. 
So when I was writing it, I was listening to all of the Bond themes on repeat, you know, just in a circle and different one, different songs would help me with different scenes. So it's, it, you know, I think it's almost impossible not to think about it cinematically when you're writing it. What, what scenes would uh, Die Another Day help you? <laughs> well, that, you know, I think that's good for a torture scene. I've always thought that yeah. the, the, the first sort of, I mean, I, I, I will go to bat for Die Another Day because it was the first one I saw in the cinema, so I have a real soft spot for it. And I think there are some really good elements of it, but particularly I love that beginning. We've never seen that before. Bond is mm. tortured. And that torture sequence puts through the filter of the titles. I always thought it was really clever. Um, so yeah, it's good. It's good for a torture sequence. That one, Madonna talking about Freud. Why not? <laughs> Kim, you're in good company. We we like die another day here, me and Brendan. So uh, you said that you'd went, you watched it I, uh, I, when, when when the book was announced, yeah. and uh, I think both of us were, were put a big smile on our faces. But interesting, that is a film where Bond is missing, right? Yeah, exactly. He's out, he's out of action. So there yeah. is a weird connection there. Or, uh, not, not necessarily weird, but direct yeah. connection there, really. Yeah, and I think because that was my first cinematic experience, it had a big influence on me seeing that. And I was, how old did I have been? Maybe it was my 13th or 12th birthday. It was for a birthday that I went. And it was so exciting. First, first time to get to see it on the cinema. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was all brilliant. And um, I remember, you know, the, the adults I would talk to about it were very nice. and didn't say they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't deflate my joy. <laughs> well, it's interesting, actually, that that probably was the last of the Bond films that you could go as a child and really sort of get something from, right? Um, yeah, and perhaps that's what makes that film so thrilling still when you revisit it. It does speak to the inner child in you. Yeah, it does, it does. And also, I think it does something that Fleming does in the books and then that they really embrace for the Daniel Craig films but that you hadn't seen much in the films beforehand the idea of an aging bond who isn't wanted anymore and is vulnerable the, the, the bond of the books if people haven't read the books goes through a real character arc you know it's changed by the events of each novel and when you, if you look at a novel like The Spy Who Loved Me you have a bond who is really quite battered around the edges and, and weary, kind of soul weary. So I, I really liked that about Die Another Day, that we have this character who's almost almost defeated, but because he's bond, he refuses to be defeated. I love that. Kim, uh, we're asking all of our guests at the moment about their favourite Bond movie moment for the 60th anniversary, and I wondered if we could put you on the spot. One mo One moment. Yeah, I mean, it can be as big or as small as you like. <laughs> That's really One moment. Oh, I don't know if this counts as the moment. I would say all of the train journey in from Russia with love. That's quite a long moment. <laughs> I love the building tension of that sequence. I love the dinner scene. I love the red wine with fish. Uh, I love the fight. I love how him on his knees, you have some desperate he is in that moment, but he doesn't give in. The lighting of the fight is just all so perfect. How he gets off the train and the code words and everything. I I, I love all of that. So I, yeah, I think I think that whole train sequence would be my favourite moment. That is, I mean, that is a, a great choice. And it's just packed with so, like you say, so many amazing moments within yeah. itself. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's one that we always refer back to as well, because it's mm. sort of one of those bomb moments that is sort of a little bit different to how the film, how the series progresses into. It's not about scale. It's not yeah. about explosions. It's about it's real spycraft, 
Yes. Um, so there's real intimacy to it. And yeah. obviously you've got um, um, Red Grant as well, who's just one yeah. of the most terrifying. So chilling, friends. so good. Yeah. Mm. And I think you're completely right. That sequence is almost like a short story in and of itself. It, it does have that intimacy and it's about escalating tension and suspense. And, and it's, it's, it, it really mirrors the book in that way. It it's, takes that tension from the page, I think. And, and it's also so stylish and kind of calls on North by Northwest as well. You know, that sort of era of men in grey suits looking good on trains. Beautiful. <laughs> talk about Red Grant there, though. What can, what can you talk about the villain of your of your book of, of Double sure. Everything? So there's, there's kind of two villains in a sense. So there's tech billionaire Sir Bertram Paradise, who claims he can halt the climate crisis through geoengineering. So seems to have very pure intentions. And 004, Joseph Dryden's job is to work out whether those intentions are quite so pure as he claims. So that's sort of his mission. And then Bashir and Harwood are facing a shadowy private military organization that not much is known about called Rattenfanger. And they're trying to get to the bottom of this organization and what their intentions are. So, um... I mean, coming up with a villain must be quite a delicious prospect. Yeah, yeah. well, it's hard. You know, I, talk, I talked with, um, they do this film premiere for the Fleming family. When, when the new films come out, they do a premiere just for the family. And they invite along their writers very kindly. So that was where I first met Anthony Horowitz and Charlie Higson. And they do these nice drinks at the Royal Automotive Club on Pall Mall. So we were up on the roof terrace and we three went in a little corner in a huddle and uh, kind of talked about writing Bond, which was so, so amazing and surreal. I, I really felt like if my 12-year-old self could see me now, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. But we were all talking about one of the main challenges is the villain, because the Bond villains are so iconic and indelible. You know, you can just take your pick. You can list dozens and dozens who are so good. Think about somebody like Goldfinger or Dr. No or Red Grant. They're just so fantastic. And the films deliver again and again on these memorable villains and they, they get such good actors to do them. Um, Le Chiffre, so good in the, in the Casino Royale film. So it is a real challenge. But I was kind of looking at, I took my cue from Fleming because I, I feel like Fleming, with his antagonist, he thought about what were the main threats of the day, whether it was the ideological threat of communism or the very real threat of the bomb or, or the kind of looming shadow of World War II. So if you read Goldfinger, that villain really taps into the memory of World War II when there's the description of what seems to be the mass bodies at Fort Knox. That description for me really evokes what people had just witnessed in some ways for the first time in World War II, thinking not only about the battlefields, but the concentration camps the idea of mass death and mass mechanized death. And I think you see that in those quite haunting descriptions in Goldfinger. So it taps into that experience of World War II, but it also taps into the fears of the Cold War and, and the fears of the bomb and the, the fears of nuclear annihilation, really. So when I was thinking about the villains, I, I was considering what would Fleming do now? What, what would he write about now? And that was why the climate crisis came up because I feel like that's our most pressing existential and real threat that we're facing as a as an entire planet so I, I mm. wanted to bring that in 
what do you um what do you think the secret to the longevity of 007 is oh good question i think it's that he's a flexible icon which sounds strange you think about an icon like a religious image you know flattened and and fixed but there's the essential ingredients of bond so got to have a martini and a tuxedo and an Aston Martin and have a particular attitude and that's Bond and then we recognise, oh, that's Bond, but can also change. And so the character on screen has been able to adapt with time. And I think that capacity for change is baked into Fleming, going back to what I was saying earlier about how Bond changes from, from novel to novel. The, the Bond of the novels is very human and very vulnerable and does change and does become weathered by the job. And I think it's that capacity for change mixed with those essential ingredients that creates an adaptable icon that you can carry with you through the ages. Really one of our most evergreen heroes. Hmm. So just to wrap things up, Kim, this uh, Double or Nothing is out now. It's the first in a trilogy of books. We, When we spoke to you last night, you said you nearly finished the second book already. Yes. So what can you tell us about the rest of this, uh, the Double O section series? Well, what can I tell you without being killed? Um, <laughs> so it's been conceived as a trilogy. And for me, it, it does feel like one flowing writing process because I began writing book two when I was editing book one. So hopefully people can read each one as a standalone book if they if they would like to. Um, but for me, it's, it's, a, it's an overarching story. And that's what's been so exciting. My favorite stories is something like you know, TV, ensemble TV shows is the overarching ones. We get to follow characters over a, a long space and you get that opportunity with a trilogy. So I guess I can say that if you read Double or Nothing and you want to know what happens next to the characters, you'll find out in the next book. And that, I guess, I guess I can say I know where I'm going. But the first thing I wrote was the last scene of the third book. So I have the roadmap and I just need to drive to the destination. That's great. I can't wait to. It's can't wait to read. It can't wait for people to to, to discover more about your your new agents. Um, so yeah, just wanted to say thank you very much for uh, for taking the time today. Thank um, you. Uh, I just wanted to ask one one final question. The often the first line of a, a Fleming book is is one of the most gripping. Did you agonise over your first line of your book? <laughs> I did. And the silly thing is, I wrote out the first line. And then I agonised and changed it a thousand times. And then I went back to the first one I'd written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's a, it's a quote from the Quran. Um, and it's the motto of the white helmets in Syria um, to save one life, to save all of humanity. And the, the novel opens in Syria. So it opens with that philosophy. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kim. Hopefully we'll get to see you in the next book that comes out as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. 
American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.